Um, good morning, everybody. I'm glad that you could be here today. Um, we are going to be looking at the book of Daniel in the historical context. And I have a lot of slides for you to hopefully keep your interest peaked. Um, I, I did find a lot of interesting things, but what we're gonna be doing is looking at the people and the places that, we, that are talked about in the book of Daniel and, and looking at what the secular historical record says. Um, and I, yeah, it was very interesting to me it, to, to go on this journey of, um, you know, history and to um, put, put what we read in the Bible in context. I don't know about you, but in my mind, I tend to kind of compartmentalize this is what happened in the Bible. This is the chronology of the Bible. But I, but I have a sense that anything that happened outside the Bible is just different. Like I, I couldn't put, I couldn't put the things together at the same time. And I think what I found in doing this study is I was able to, to, to kind of put it together in my mind a little bit. And that's what I'm hoping that this lesson today will do for you is to, <clears throat> to show you that that. The Bible is true. The world is going to tell you that it is just a religious text. It, you know, it doesn't, um, you, you can't use it as historical fact, but I believe that we can. Um, the, the archeological evidence, um, just the, 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 the manuscripts, all of the things that we have found point to this awesome book being true. It is the absolute word of God. So I'm going to pray mostly for myself <laughs> um, <laughs> because, you know, that's just, I just need that. And, um, and then we're going to dive in. Okay. Um, Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this opportunity um, to look at your word and look at the truthfulness of the word, of your word. God, I pray that um, you would just guide our conversation today, um, Lord, that as we look at the historical evidence, um, that it will just increase our awe and wonder of you, Lord, and how you are God of all. You are the God of all nations, all cultures, all civilizations, and Lord, this is your story and it is unfolding in the pages of Daniel. And so, Lord, I just pray um, that we would walk away from this lesson today with more insight and knowledge. Lord, that we would stand in wonder and awe at who you are. And Lord, I just pray that you would um, equip me um, to share the things that you've shown me over the past couple of weeks, Lord. We thank you for the ladies who could be here with us today. We thank you for those who are watching online. Um, and Lord, I just pray that you would be with them and bless them. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, to set the stage, we are going to go back to Daniel chapter 2. If you want to open your Bibles, you can follow along with me. If you will remember, King Nebuchadnezzar, um, from now on, I will refer to him as King Nebi, 
because it's easier to write in my notes. I call him King Nebi. Um, he had a dream, if you'll recall, and it disturbed him, and he didn't know, he didn't know what it meant. And so he called all of his, you know, magicians and, you know, wise men and whatever, and they couldn't, they couldn't tell him what the dream was, and they certainly couldn't interpret it. And so finally, they bring Daniel in, and Daniel, being filled by the Holy Spirit, is able to not only, um, uh, well, he's able to tell the king what the dream was and interpret it. And so that's where we're going to pick up today, Daniel chapter 2, and we're going we're gonna to look at verses 31 to 35. This is, this is Daniel's interpretation of the dream. Um, well, actually, he first says, well, I'm just going to start it. I'm just going to start at Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So that was, that was the dream. And then we move into the interpretation of the dream. In verse 36, he says, This was the dream. Now we will tell the king of its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he is given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay." And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to other people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Okay, so we have the dream, and we have the interpretation. Morgan, if we could go to the, the next slide. Oops, go back. I'm sorry. I didn't know. I didn't realize that's where we were. Okay. 
So <clears throat> this is this is the kingdom, right? This is these are the different kingdoms that were mentioned in the dream, um, and there, you know, we we've got the head of gold, and he said very clearly that's King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebi, that's him. Following him will be another kingdom, the chest of arms and silver, and we know. We know that this second kingdom is known as the Medo-Persian Empire. And then the next one, the kingdom of um, the, the kingdom of um, the, the bronze, the belly and the thighs of bronze, that's the Greek Empire. And then following that, we have that kingdom of iron, and that's the Roman Empire. And so... Um, we are going to kind of walk through these kingdoms, the various kingdoms, and we're going to learn some fun facts and just kind of dig in and try to understand this um, a little bit better. So if we go to the next slide, this is a map of the Babylonian Empire. Um, you can see on the map there's Babylon, there's some different, um, it's, you know, it's right there like on the river. There's some other cities that you may recognize. Um, Judah is listed there, Moab. Wh who do we know from Moab? Remember? Who was from Moab? Ruth, Ruth right? Um, Damascus, that's a city we hear of today. You know, that's, that's a city that's there today. Nineveh, ooh, what do we know about Nineveh? That's Jonah, bless his heart. He didn't want to go there. Um, and so, so, here, so here is kind of, you know, at its peak, this image shows the extent of the Babylonian Empire. And so as I'm looking at this, I'm like, well, who were these Babylonian people? And where did they come from? I mean, we hear about them all the time. Um, and if, if you look in Genesis um, if you look in Genesis chapter 10, verses 6 to 10, we have a little bit of a genealogy. And I'll just read it for you. It says the sons of Ham, right? So Noah, so remember Noah was on the boat and flood and only he and his family survived. And he had three sons. And so, um, so one of his sons was named Ham. And so we see... Um, in this passage, it says, the sons of Ham, you have Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, um, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca. Yeah, I'm going with that. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Akkad, and Kalni, in the land of Shinar, right? So here's our genealogy. We have Noah, who begat Ham, who begat Cush, who begat Nimrod. And Nimrod settled in the land of Shinar around 2300 B.C., 2300 BC, right? And that is now modern day Iraq. Okay? 
So if we go to the next slide, we can just, we're going to see some different names of Babylon in the Bible. It's not always referred to as Babylon. It's called the land of the Chaldeans, the land of Shinar, the desert of the sea, the lady of kingdoms. Oh boy, I don't, do I have to pronounce that one? I'm just going to skip that one. Uh, how about the land of Marathame? Sounds good. And then Shishak. Ooh, that sounds like, that sounds like a Shishak. I got a man cave and a Shishak. No. Um, so, so these are some different names of Babylon. And the city, you know, the region had um, a reputation for defiance. Remember the Tower of Babel? Right. We're, you know, we're going to make a tower um, as high as the gods so we can be our own God. Right. That, you know, had a had a reputation for defiance. If we go to the to our next slide. Um, this is an artist's interpretation of ancient Babylon, probably at its height. Um, one of the things that I've, um, I've found, it said uh, about Babylon, it said, for much of its early history, Babylon was a small, obscure city-state until King, here we go, um, and I practiced these too, until King Hammurabi, Hammer, sure, from 1792 to 1750 BC, chose it as his capital, expanding the empire that became Babylonia. It was located about 59 miles southwest of modern Baghdad, that's in Iraq, and Babylon was laced with an intricate system of canals leading off the Euphrates River, used for ir irrigation and commerce. Now this king, King Hammurabi, is almost universally identified with, um, oh man, and I practice these, Amraphel of Genesis 14.1. So again, we see another connection, another historical connection with a name that's in the Bible um, to someone that the secular historians have, you know, they have different proof and history that these people existed. Um, one of the things that can be confusing sometimes is the names are, they're they look different, they're spelled different, and that has to do with them trying to translate them from one language into another. And so you get different, different spellings, different, you know, um, because I mean, how many languages are we talking here? We've got all these different languages and then trying to translate that then later into English. And so you get different things. But this king who, um, who we were talking about, 17, um, in the, you know, 1700-ish BC, um, chose Babylon as its capital. And from that point on, it was, you know, an important city in the region. And during, during its time, there was a relatively peaceful coexistence between Babylon and the Assyrians, right? We hear about the Assyrians a lot. They were, you know, aggressors and they liked to conquer. Um, but th they were relatively at peace until Babylon would, like if it ever felt its, its privileges or its um, power was being like snuffed out, it would rebel and then we would have war. And then by about 600 BC, um, Babylon was so impressive that it was considered the center of the world. And I mean, look at, I mean, look at 
this image, right? Morgan had talked about the gates and the walls and, you know, and all of the, all of the, you know, building projects and things that King Nebuchadnezzar um, did. It was, it was a modern marvel. <clears throat> so we're going to look now at the next slide. And this is, again, we've got our map of the empire and then we've got the different, um, we've got some different kings here. And I just thought it would be good to follow a t our timeline, again, to get in our mind a perspective of what happened, when it happened, where it happened. And so, so we're going to start with um, King Nabu Pilasar. He reigned from 626 BC to 605 BC. And he came to power when the last Assyrian king died. Um, the Babylonian people were able to rebel um, and were successful in rebelling against Assyria. And the new Babylonian empire was established with Nebuchadnezzar as king. He was a Babylonian general. His name means Nabu, protect my son. Now, Nabu is in the Bible, it's Nebu. And he was the son of the god Marduk. And so Nebuchadnezzar had this name that had the, you know, the son of the god of Marduk in his name saying, Nabu, protect my son. That's what his name meant. Now, in the Old Testament, the worship of this god, Nabu, is denounced by Isaiah in chapter 46 and verse 1. So again, we're getting some more like biblical connections here in our his historical um, context. Um, the next king was Nebuchadnezzar. Um, in all the stuff I could find, he was actually named Nebuchadnezzar II. I did not do any further research to find out who Nebuchadnezzar I was, but I guess he was the second one. Um, his name means Nabu, preserve my firstborn son. So he was the eldest son of Nabu-Pileser. He was educated in military matters. Um, he had good administrative skills. Um, and he's the one that engaged in all these big building projects. It was under, it was under him that Babylon you know, had the Hanging Gardens and the Ishtar Gate and all, all those things that we talked about. Um, King Nebi was succeeded by his son, Evil Merodach. And he is mentioned, Evil Merodach is mentioned in 2 Kings verse 25, uh, excuse me, chapter 25, verse 27. Um, one of the writers that I found said he was probably influenced by Daniel and he showed kindness to King Jehoiakim who had been a prisoner in Babylon for 37 years. He released him and, and quote, spoke kindly to him. He was unable to win the support of the priest of um, Marduk and so he was murdered by um, Neraglissar, his brother-in-law, who succeeded him. So lots of intrigue and murder and, you know, mystery as we look at all of this. You know, things don't change. 
right? I mean, people don't change. I want power. I'm going to off, you know, him. That's crazy. Um, so we're at, um, so we're in the year like 560 to 556 BC. He didn't reign a whole, you know, a really long time. His name, again, Nereglisar. Some dictionaries say that his name means protect the king. Others say he means the prince of fire. He was married to King Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. Um, and in the se secular historical evidence, they found, like archaeological evidence, they found ruins of a palace that were on the right bank of the Euphrates River. And in that palace, it had inscriptions saying that it was built by Nereglisar. Um, in the Bible, he's only mentioned in Jeremiah 39, um, verse 3, and in chapter 39, um, verse 13. In that context, his name is Nigal Shazara. Sure. Um, and he was sent to free Jeremiah from prison. His minor son succeeded him, and when I say minor, he was a baby when the when he was made king. But that son was later murdered because he was not suitable for the job. Um, so the next the next king in the line of the empire is Nabonius. He reigned from 556 to 539. His name means reverer of Nabu. He is not mentioned in the Bible. He's not specifically mentioned in the Bible, but he was from a town called Haran that was mentioned in the Bible. And Haran is where Abraham's family settled when they left Ur of the Chaldeans. That's in Genesis chapter 11. So there is still, like, again, Haran is a, is a place that Nabonius was from, and our Bible talks about... Um, this city of Haran. Nabonius' mom was a priestess of the god of sin. She came to Babylon and somehow she was able to secure, like she worked herself up in, you know, authority or something and was able to get him a position on the court. And um, it is thought that there were some powerful factions that were against this, the priest of Marduk that supported his kingship. So again, you know, not so different from, the, from today. We have our political parties that are aligned, you know, one way or the other. And back then you had the priest of this God aligning against the priest of this other God and, you know, working their, working their way to try to get power and things. And um, so he was thought, Nabonius was thought to be married to Nidocris, who was a daughter of King Nebuchadnezzar and the widder, widow of Nereglisar. So there's some family connections in there. Um, and there was, an, there was an, uh, a popular uprising led by the priest of Marduk. And during that time, Nabonius made his son Belshazzar co-regent and spent much of his reign in Arabia. So I don't know if you remember your timeline but it, in, the, in the timeline in your, um, in your materials that, that we have, you'll see you know, where it has two, it looks like it's two different people reigning at the same time. Um, and what history tells us is that um, 
one would be like the ruler of Babylon while the other was like the ruler of Babylonia, you know, and that's kind of how that, um, that worked out. When um, Nabonius returned to Babylon in 539 BC, he was captured by Cyrus's general Gobrus and exiled. And so now we look at Belshazzar. Um, he reigned from 553 to 539. Again, there's that, you know, overlap between him and Nabonius. His name means master of the treasure. He was the eldest son of Nabonius. And again, he was the co-regent of Babylon while uh, Nabonius was out. Um, now, up until the late 1800s, Belshazzar was unknown outside of biblical text. They had not found anything in the historical record to verify that he was a real person. Um, but one day, there were some heavy rains um, that unearthed a ravine in Hilla, which is a suburb of Babylon, and they found some huge vases, like they were like earthenware vases, and they that were filled with tables and receipts and contracts from a Babylonian bank. See, they had banks and things. Isn't that interesting? Um, that showed that Belshazzar had a household with secretaries and stewards. And in one of the contract tablets that they found, um, it was dated in July after the defeat of the army of Nabonius. We find him paying tithes for his sister to the temple of the sun god at Sippara. Fascinating. Why would, you know, they keep track of those things and put them in a vase and, I don't know, keep records and things like that. Um, Daniel chapter 5 verse 30 says that after the writing on the, on the wall, after that incident, he was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. The secular historical records, they don't talk about writing on the wall. They don't. They don't mention that, but they do say that he died after Babylon fell to Persian general Gobroius without resistance on October 12, 539 BC, which was about 17 days before the Persian king Cyrus II entered the city. So exactly what God said would happen or what, what Daniel had said would happen happened and we have the historical record to confirm that but again i just find it interesting because until they found those tablets in the 1800s to the secular world belshazzar did not exist right it was just in the bible so um so with the fall of um belshazzar the Babylonian Empire is done. We're at the end. Um, Morgan, if you go to the next slide. So just some fun facts from other things that were going on during this time. Um, in 776 BC, that was the start of the uh, first Olympic Games. So the, Greek, the Greeks were, you know, they they had a civilization and they were doing things. Um, 
753 BC, Rome is founded. We'll talk a little bit more about Rome later. Um, Buddha was born sometime between 583 and 483. I found different, they had different times for him, so we're just going to throw them throw out there. But, um, and then Confucius was born in China in 551 BC. And I'm like, well, what's going on? What's going on in uh, North America, right? Nobody ever talks about North America. And I found that in 500 BC, there was a, a people group called the Olmecs who were spreading all over Mexico and Central America. So we, there were people living, you know, in the United States or North American area. I guess it wasn't the United States; it's probably South, anyway, Mexico. But, but there were pe different people groups all over the world you know it wasn't so when we when we are reading our bible we have to we have to remember that there's other stuff going on around at, you know at the same time and uh and i believe god is orchestrating all of it and so okay so the babylonian empire is done and now we're moving into that second kingdom that from the dream, the chest and arms of silver, and it's the Medo-Persian Empire. It looks, it looks a little bit bigger than the Babylonian Empire, doesn't it? It expanded way outside the boundaries. Um, this empire spans 200 years of biblical history. Um, Herodot Herodotus, 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 I don't know. Anyway, he was a Greek writer. He wrote the first, like, ancient his history, um, um, it, and it was, like, in the 400s or something B.C. I'm not exactly sure when he wrote it. But anyway, he tells us that, like, the Medes were divided into six tribes, of whom the Magi were one of them. Um, and this is, I thought this was very interesting. So, while the rise of the Babylonian Empire um, is associated with the destruction of Jerusalem, the rise of the Medes and the Persians are associated with the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So one came to destroy and the other came to build up. Three of our uh, historical books of the Bible, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and three of the minor prophets, um, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, all have their context during the reign of the Medo-Persian Empire. So, um, and during this time, the captives of Judah, you know, they'd been sent off into exile, right? They were permitted to go back to Jerusalem and restore their city um, and the temple. And the temple was actually restored in 517 to 516 BC. I would ask if you had any questions, but I don't know that I could answer them. <laughs> so, um, does, it, does anybody have any questions at this point? Or any observations? Anything that kind of strikes out? Okay. I can send them to you. Yeah, I can send them to you. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I didn't cite anything. <laughs> so, so, um, so don't like, yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't cite anything, but yes, I can send them to you. So, 
Um, okay. Anybody else? Anybody else notice anything interesting? Anything stuck out to you? Are you just completely overwhelmed? It's interesting to me that Buddha and Confucius, I never put it together that they actually originated before Jesus was born. Mm. During a time period where prophecy was lacking. Yeah. That is that is interesting. Like I never had really put them in that context either. Yeah. So Anybody else have any thoughts or comments? Yeah, yeah. Think how how. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You think about Babylon. I think you said it something to the effect of it was known as the center of the world at that time. But then you look at this map of the Persian Empire and you see just how massive it is. But to know that Greek and Roman empires have already started, mm -hmm. and they're still, yeah. Yeah, it, it. In the whole context of the whole world, to see the Roman Jesus that's so famous. Yep. Yeah, it is. It's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. So. Okay, um, so let's look at our next slide. We're going to talk about who were the Medes? Who were the Medes? So we go, I go back to the Bible. I'm like, well, they had to come from somewhere. So we have Noah. He had three sons. We already talked about Ham. Um, he had another son, Japheth. And he had um, Madia which is Medes, it can be translated to Medes. Um, Barossus, a Chaldean priest of Bel, wrote that the Medes conquered Babylon around 2458 BC. I mean, think about our time, like these people groups were around a really long time. From the, you know, the days of Noah, his son Japheth, Madia, and then, um, yeah, and then they settled in that area known as Media, Middle Land in Persia. But 23, excuse me, 2400 BC, right? Chronologically, the Medes are, in, chronologically in the Bible, the Medes are first mentioned in Scripture in Isaiah 13, verse 17. And then Isaiah talking, uh, or God talking through Isaiah says, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, later predicting the fall of Babylon in verse 19. Jeremiah states that the Medes will be used by God in Jeremiah 51.11, but also said that they would be one of the nations punished by God in Jeremiah 25.25. 25. God uses who he will, but you are still accountable for what you do. Um, the Medes are last mentioned in Acts chapter 2, verse 9. I thought that was interesting that they were also spoken of in the New Testament as well. Again, I didn't go into a lot of detail on that. I just, that was an interesting point to me. Um, the next slide, who were the Persians? 
They were referred to as Elamites. So we have Noah, who begat Sham, who begat Elam, and then we get our Elamites. They settled in an area known as Paris near the Persian Gulf. They are not mentioned in the Bible until the books of the exile, Second Chronicles and Ezra. Um, just fun fact, Abraham was also a descendant of Shem. I just thought that was interesting. The people, so God's chosen people came from Shem, but then these other, these other sons came, um, you know, different tribes, and they they walked away from God, right? Yeah. Right, right, right. And we see, and we see through our, you know, list now, we've got Ham, um, we've got Shem, we've got Japheth. You know, the three sons of Noah, their offspring um, were all fighting, fighting for dominance. They were against each other, and yet they all had the same ancestors. I mean, same is true today. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> boys will be boys, you know. <laughs> I don't know. Mm. Right. That, that is interesting. Yeah. Um, let's see. The Persians were a people of lively and impressive, impressible minds, brave and impetuous in war, witty and passionate, not without some spirit of generosity and of more intellectual capacity than that of, than the generality of Asianics. So I think with this, I got this from like Bible Hub. That's a great resource, by the way, for like topical. Um, Biblehub.com has a lot of historical context um, about different topics, different people. It's really, I got a lot of information from there. But the Persians, think of it, they were Asian. They were Asian. Um, another commentator said it is probable that they enjoyed their independence for several ages. They had a monarch with a system of succession um, until they were subdued by, guess who? The Assyrians. And their country was sucked into that empire. Toward the end of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, the Persians began to become a powerful force, and under Cyrus II, Media was conquered in 549 BC and was combined with the empire of the Persians to form Medo-Persia. The combined strength of the Persians and the Medes led to the conquest of Babylon in 539 BC. Remember the writing on the wall. Belshazzar lost his kingdom in 539 BC. 
with the resulting extension of their empire over much of the inner Middle East until the conquest of Alexander the Great in 331 BC. So let's go to our next slide. <laughs> Look at all those kings. And we're going to talk about every single one in detail. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I, saw, I saw this and I thought, I don't, we would have to have a fall conference to go through all of, all of these people. But here are the different kings that reigned during this period from 539 to 431. But we're only going to hit a few of them. Okay. Now, during this time frame, uh, Buddha died in 483 B.C., and Confucius died in 471 B.C. So, while these guys were doing their thing, we've got Confucius over in China and Buddha over, I guess he was in India. I don't know exactly where he was. But um, if we go to the next slide, slide 13, these are, the, these are the kings that we're going to focus on. And mostly because they're just more relevant to our, our story and our context. So we're going to start with Cyrus. And, well, we're going to start with Cyrus. Then we're going to talk about Darius the Mede. Cambrisis? Cambrisis? I don't know how. Morgan, help me out. Cambrisis? I'm going to say it with confidence. Cambrises. How about that? Darius I and Xerxes. So those are the ones we're going to talk through. So we're going to start with King Cyrus. He was the founder of the Persian Empire. He was part of that Persian royal family. He was the son of the king of Persia and the daughter of the king of Medes. So he was... He was he had one foot in one kingdom and one foot in the other kingdom. Now, one resource said that he was Darius the Mede's nephew. So just put a note on that because there's some question about who Darius the Mede actually was. But one resource I found said that he was um, the nephew. From historical writings outside of the Bible, we see that Cyrus was considered a man of noble character. Unlike prior kings, Cyrus was not an oppressor to the Jews, but rather a, quote, shepherd. As Isaiah 44, verse 28, it says, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. So Cyrus was mentioned by name in the Bible by Isaiah around 711 B.C. And what time frame are we in right now? 539-ish B.C., somewhere in there. That's 200 years before Cyrus was even born. And Isaiah is prophesying about this man. The historian Josephus, have y'all ever heard of Josephus? He's one of, he, he's one of the go-tos of the secular historical accounts that he verifies a lot of the things that happened in the Bible. He records 
he, this is really interesting. He says that when Cyrus realized that he had been called by name by God long before he was in his mother's womb, he made this proclamation throughout all of Asia. Since the Most High God has appointed me king of the habitable world, I am convinced that he is the God whom the Israelites worship. He foretold my name through the prophets and that I was to build his temple in Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? That was a proclamation that went out. Cyrus increased the size of the Medo-Persian Empire. He brought the whole of the Near East within the Persian Empire, with all the exception of Egypt. See that big yellow area there under Babylon? Didn't get that part. Um, if we go to the next slide, this is, this is cool stuff here. That is the tomb of Cyrus. It still stands today. Details on his death are uncertain. The consensus is that he probably died in battle. And I'm just not even gonna try. Where this tomb is located is the scene of one of his most decisive battles, like or victories. Um, the, the next item there on the right, that's called the Cyrus Cylinder. It was made of clay and it was broken into many pieces. It's written in an Akkadian cuneiform script. You'll find a lot of the ancient writings and things are written in this, in this type of thing. The text on the cylinder praises Cyrus. It sets out his genealogy and portrays him as a king from a line of kings. One of the quotes on this cylinder, <laughs> this is awesome. This is what he said about his rule. I am Cyrus, king of the world, great king, powerful king, king of Babylon, king of the country of Sumar and Akkad, king of the four corners of the earth. He's a little bit full of himself, isn't he? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. But he thought he was king over the four corners of the earth, and yet we know we've got the Roman Empire is brewing over here. We've got the Greek Empire that's coming up. We've got China, people in China. We, you know, there are different people groups, but in, in their mind, their area was the four corners of the world. So... All right, so let's go back to our list of kings, the next slide. So now we're up to Darius the Mede. The Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, calls him Artaxerxes. From Daniel chapter 6, verse 28, we infer that Darius was king at the same time with Cyrus. Outside of the book of Daniel, there is no mention of Darius the Mede by name. But there are um, good reasons to identify him with Gubaru, the governor of, I don't know, this other place, who was said um, in one of the, like, historical records to have, to have been appointed by Cyrus as his governor of Babylon after its capture from the Chaldeans. It doesn't actually, and there's some, there's some that say that Darius was, the name Darius is actually a title 
not necessarily a name. So, you know, you could see how they would, they would give someone the title Darius the Mede um, when the name was actually something else. Um, but the Bible tells us that Darius was 62 years old when he took over for Belshazzar. And like I said in that other, um, uh, back earlier, um, it said that, that Cyrus was Darius the Mede's nephew. And so when you kind of look at the ages there, I mean, it, it maybe, I don't know. Um, let's see. Now we go to our next one. Our next, oh, no, no, I'm sorry, back, 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 back. Um, we go to Cambyses, I don't know. He was the older son of Cyrus. The older son of Cyrus had his brother Smedes killed shortly after his ascension, um, probably because of, of an attempted rebellion. He extended the empire through the annexation and conquest of Egypt, so he brought Egypt into the fold. There was a papyrus found that mentioned him that indicated that when he came to Egypt, he tore down some of the temples of the Egyptian gods but allowed no harm to be done to the temples of Yahweh. The circumstances about his death are disputed, but all of them say that he had some kind of a wound to his thigh. Some say it was self-inflicted. Some say it was in battle. Nevertheless, it got infected and he died. He did not have any children. So we move on to Darius I. He ruled from 521 to 486. He was called, oh, I'm just not going there. I should have really practiced all these names and I just didn't. <laughs> I just didn't. I did some of them, but not enough to be able to speak with you in confidence this morning. Um, but he was the son of a Persian king also. The Bible mentions him in Ezra 4, um, verses 1 to 7, and also in, um, in, and also in, I don't know, in another. He's also mentioned in um, Haggai and Zechariah as the king who renewed the permission to build, to rebuild the temple. He's the one that gave them permission to rebuild the temple. Um, he reigned for 36 years. Um, one of the, one of the historical contexts I found said he removed the seat of government to Susa, whereupon Babylon rebelled against him, but he subdued the rebellion and broke down the walls of Babylon as was predicted in Jeremiah 51 verse 58. Secularly, he is known for reorganizing and enlarging the Persian Empire. He added northern India, Thrace, Macedon, and, the, and northeastern Greece. Under Darius, the Persian Empire was at its greatest. If we go to the next slide, we can look at a couple of artifacts that were found um, during his reign. The first, it's a winged lion with a ram's head and griffin's hind legs. 
It's an enameled tile frieze, and it's from the Palace of Darius I at Susa. Isn't that cool? Well, that was really interesting. The second one is um, it's showing Darius I seated between two incense burners, and um, it was it was found in the courtyard of a treasury. So, I think it's pretty interesting. I don't know how they know who these people are when they find these. Like, how do they know? Because honestly, they all look the same, and all the little, the little when they chisel the little stones out, they all look very kingly, and they have beards and wear funny hats. And like, I don't, I don't know how they know who they are, but people smarter than me figured it out. All right, if we go back to our list of kings, we come to Xerxes. He ruled from 486 to 465 BC. His name means prince or head or chief. I also found another one that said Lion King. That was interesting. His name is an attempt to transliterate into Greek, Xerxes, the Persian name, and it's a long name. I'm just not going to say it. Um, he was the... Ahashverosh, there you go. Um, he ruled the world in legendary opulence. That's what he was known for. Like he, he lived the life. Biblical references mostly discussed in the book of Esther. Um, he's also referred to in Daniel 9.1. Um, secularly, he is best known for his invasion of Greece in 480 BCE. And this is one of the, um, this is what Bible Hub had to say about that. It said that he invaded Greece with an army of more than 2 million soldiers. Wrap your head around that. 2 million soldiers only 5,000 of which returned with him. Leonidas, with his famous 300, arrested his progress at the pass of Thymoplia, and then he was defeated disastrously um, by Themistocles at Salamis. It was after his return from this invasion that Esther was chosen as his queen. So... He was, I mean, like, they lost over, um, like, almost 2 million people. I mean, it seems like to me the empire has gone the, and he's still living in opulence. And what we know from Esther, you know, having these, you know, feasts and still living the life of the king, right? Um, but uh, was not very successful in conquering things. If we go to the next slide, these are the ruins of the royal palace. This is in Iran. And um, the palace was begun by Darius I and completed during the reigns of Xerxes I and Artaxerxes I. More kings followed. Remember that chart with all the things? Um, we're not going to go through them, but... They had more kings after him until Alexander the Great 
335 BC began his conquest of the Medo-Persian Empire. Wouldn't it be neat to go and see some of these ancient ruins? I mean, and to just touch something that was so old. I don't know, I, I just can't wrap my head around it. Um, if we go to the next slide, we're at the Greek Empire. This will take us from five, excuse me, from 330 BC to 63 BC. In 535 BC, Alexander the Great, a Macedonian king, began his conquest of the Medo-Persian Empire. The Persians were defeated by the Greeks at the Battle of Arbela in 331 BC, making the Greeks the regional world power. After Alexander's death in 323 BC, the Greeks split into four kingdoms. Tuck that in your brain, it's important. They broke into four kingdoms. If we go to the next slide, it looks like a drawing, doesn't it? It's not, it's a mosaic. It's a mosaic. This is a mosaic of Alexander the Great leading his forces against the retreating Persian army led by Darius III at the Battle of Issus in 333 BC. Um, and it was, it's a, a mosaic from the House of Fawn in Pompeii. What do we know about Pompeii? Got wiped off <laughs> by um, that volcano, whatever. Um, so let's talk about Alexander the Great, the King of Macedon. His name means one who assists men He was tutored by Aristotle. Pretty cool. He became king of Macedon after his father, Philip II, was assassinated in 336 BC. He invaded Persia and overthrew Darius III, making his kingdom the largest in the ancient world, stretching from Greece to northwestern India. He was considered one of, the, one of history's most successful military commanders. And while he conquered Asia, he endeavored to also Hellenize her. So what does that mean to Hellenize? <clears throat> I had to look it up. I didn't know exactly. I've heard it before. I mean, haven't you heard, it, heard of like Hellenization or whatever? I'd heard of it. I didn't know what it means. It means to spread the Greek language and culture to any conquered territories. So they didn't just like, okay, we, we rule you and now you can still stay with your culture and your language and everything. They did not believe in multiculturalism. They said, we are going to conquer you and you're going to learn our language and you're going to do our things and have our culture. Um, he founded every every he everywhere founded Greek cities that enjoyed at all events a municipal autonomy. So in in government they were they were autonomous, but within this 
Hellenistic thought and the Hellenistic language were spread all over their conquered territory, even into southwestern Asia, so that philosophers from the banks of the Euphrates taught in the, in the schools of Athens. I mean, think about how far we've, we've come. It was through the conquest of Alexander the Great that Greek became the language of literature and commerce from the shores of the Mediterranean to the banks of the Tigris. Catch this. It is impossible to estimate the effect of this spread of Greek on the proclamation of the gospel. Everybody spoke the same language. And think about it. Our New Testament is written in what? Greek. In Maccabees 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 1, he is expressly named as the overthrower of the Persian Empire and the founder of that of the Greeks. Now, um, we do not believe, our, we, our church, we do not believe that the book of Maccabees is part of the canon of Scripture, um, but it is a useful historical account um, and I, I haven't actually read them yet but I have been told that it would be helpful to read them sometimes so we can look we can look to the Maccabees for history um, but it is not the inspired word of scripture biblical references to Alexander the Great he's alluded to in Daniel chapter 7 chapter 8 where he was appointed by God to destroy the Persian Empire, um, in the statue seen by Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He's the, the bronze in that. He died at a young age. He died at the age of 32. And based on what we know from some ancient Greek historians, um, Alexander was at a party and he was drinking. He was drinking a lot. And he was struck with pain. He started having pain after drinking this huge bowl of wine in honor of Hercules. So he was, he was partying, paying tribute to Hercules, complaining that he did not feel well. Alexander, went, Alexander the Great went to bed and his health steadily deteriorated as fever racked his body. And he later died. When he died in 323 B.C., he left his throne to an as-yet-unborn child who, when this child was born, became King Alexander IV with his mother, Roxanne. He was left in charge of a regent. Um, the real power, however, lay with the generals who now moved to secure control of different parts of Alexander's empire. They became known into history as Alexander's successors. And if we go to the next slide, oh, that's a different, sorry, that's a different one. So the four successors divided the Greek empire into four areas. The Ptolemy took Egypt, Palestine, Arabia, and Patera. 
Seleucus took, was given Syria, Babylonia, and Central Asia, Asia, but was soon forced out and he fled to Egypt to help Ptolemy until 312 when he was able to regain his original territory. Cassander took Macedonia and Greece and Lyomachus took Thrace and Bithynia. Bible prophecy really only concerns itself with two of the generals, Ptolemy of Egypt, the king of the south, and um, Seleucus of Syria, king of the north. These are the nations that fought over Palestine, each controlling Jerusalem at a different time. Daniel 11 is mostly a prophecy about these conflicts, speaking of the king of the north, which is Syria, and the king of the south, which is Egypt. And so we begin about 50 years of wars, coups, alliances, counter-alliances, betrayals, assassinations, and mutinies. And all of these goings on, we start to see a pattern whereby any one of the successors who gained a higher position amongst the rest, they would gather an alliance of others to bring that down. So they were always vying for power. Many Greek city-states were formed throughout this region. With the Greeks in Asia and Egypt adopting, adopting the local Greek customs, a hybrid culture, which modern scholars label Hellenistic, emerged, at least among the upper echelons of society. The most famous cities of these new Hellenistic world were Alexandria, capital of the Ptolemies in Egypt, and Antioch on the Mediterranean coast of Syria, the capital of the... <sighs> there I am again. I'm having a brain freeze. Um, capital of the Seleucids. I can't say it. I don't know why I have this break. I just can't say them. Okay. In 146 BC, the ancient Romans, so see, they're getting stronger. We're going to talk about them in a minute, but they're starting to conquest, and they attacked the ancient Greeks at the Battle of Corinth. This is in 146 BC. The Romans won, but the Romans, hey, they loved the Greek culture, and they adopted it for themselves. They adopted all the gods and the myths. They changed them just a little bit to reflect their way of life. And as long as the ancient Greeks agreed to consider Rome in charge, the Greeks were free to kind of manage themselves. Even their language remained the same. So again, that Greek culture, it survived. Um, in fact, it expanded. As the Romans expanded into Europe, they brought with them the Greek culture as well. They claimed it was Roman cultures. It said, it said the Romans often did that, adopt something and then pretend it was Roman all along. <laughs> so. so Alexander spread the Greek culture around the Mediterranean and the Romans spread the, uh, spread the Greek culture into Europe. By the end of the third century BC, 
a new power was beginning to sh cast its shadow over the Hellenistic world. That's the Romans. They were starting to come up. They had, they had started to dominate Italy and the whole of the Western Mediterranean. Um, after two major wars with the powerful maritime power of Carthage. All right. Any thoughts on, on this before we go to our next? We can go. You can go ahead and put the next slide up. Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. God was in control of all of this, working his plan and his purposes, like Karen said, through ungodly people. Why do we worry? Why do we worry? Okay, so here we are, the Roman Empire. Dun, 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 dun. It's huge. Look at that. Look at all that. This is the legs of iron, if you remember our dream. Well, not our dream, King Nebi's dream. The legs of iron, the feet and toes of clay and iron. It was a divided kingdom, partly brittle partly strong. This image is what the Roman Empire looked like in 50 BC. 50 BC. So let's talk about Rome. It was supposedly founded in 753 BC by two brothers, Romulus and Remus. And there's actually like a myth around it about like their mother was a wolf or some kind of crazy. I don't know. I didn't, I read that and was like, okay. Um, so, but we're going to go with it. We're going to say it was founded by these two brothers. By the 5th century BC, Rome was one of those city-states on the Italian peninsula. By the 4th century, it began to expand outside the city and into the peninsula. So just imagine, so, you know, it's like this, and then it starts to spread. Um, and it, that's where it, it started coming into contact with the Greeks. The Roman army began absorbing many of the city-states and kingdoms in the region. In Rome, Jewish communities enjoyed privileges and thrived economically, becoming a significant part of the empire's population, at one point perhaps as much as 10%. The Roman general Pompey in his eastern campaign established Roman Syria in 64 BC and conquered Jerusalem shortly thereafter in 63 BC. Um, my daily Bible 
says that between 37 and 30 BC, political intrigue and more wars will bring to the Egyptian stage the last and most famous of all Ptolemies, Cleopatra. We all know the story of Cleopatra. She ruled Egypt. As a Greek ruler, she poses the last real threat to Roman dominance. Her marriage to Anthony is legendary, along with their battle of Antinum in 31 BC, where both lose their lives. So again, here's another, like, we hear about Cleopatra, but let's put that in context of all the things that we're talking about here. Um, you know, 30 to 40 years before Jesus was born, Cleopatra was the queen of Egypt. I mean, it's just kind of interesting. Things are happening. It's, you know, it's not just what's happening in the Bible. There are other things happening in the world. It's really interesting. Um, in 37 BC, Herod the Great becomes king of Judah. Hey, that's somebody we know. King Herod, right? This is the same Herod of the New Testament, um, you know, when Jesus was born. He initially uh, gained favor from the Jews by rebuilding their temple, but he was no friend of the Jews. In fact, he ordered that when he died, a number of prominent Jews should be killed and buried um, at the same time so that there would be a time of mourning. So, so I, want, I want people to be sad that I'm not here anymore, but I know they don't like me very much, so I'm going to kill them, kill other people, so they'll be sad for them. I mean, what kind of evil is that? The same evil that ordered the killing of all of those babies when, you know, he was, a, he was worried about the prophecy about Jesus, right? It's evil evil. Um, so you can see, I don't know, Morgan, what's my next slide? Is this, the, is it the same? Oh, here we go. Yep. So here's another, here's another map of the Roman Empire, and you can just see how far and wide it stretched. And just to give you some context on our timeline here, so um, the Roman Empire, we say from about 63 BC to 476 AD. It is, you know, the secular history will say that between 3 and 5 BC is when Jesus was born. Um, in 26 to 27 is when Jesus began his public ministry. Between um, 30 and 60 BC, that's the early church history that's documented in Acts. So we're going to put Acts here in our timeline. Um, in 62, sometime between 62 and 67, the Apostle Paul is killed. And in, in 64 BC, that's when the Roman persecution of Christians began. This persecution persisted until Christianity was later recognized as a legitimate religion by Emperor Constantine 249 years later. Um, so here's, here is like a historical account. 
It says, in the summer of 64, Rome suffered a terrible fire that burned for six days and seven nights, consuming almost three quarters of the city. The people accused Emperor Nero, he was a really wicked guy, by the way, for the devastation, claiming he set the fire for his own amusement. Not surprising. He probably did. In order to deflect these accusations and placate the people, Nero laid blame for the fire on the Christians. The emperor ordered the arrest of a few members of the sect who under torture accused others until the entire Christian populace was implicated and became fair game for retribution. As many of the religious sect that could be found were rounded up and put to death in the most horrific manner for the amusement of the citizens of Rome. The ghastly way in which the victims were put to death aroused sympathy among many Romans, although most felt their execution justified. In 66 BC, the Jews rebelled against Rome. Um, so, the, so at this time, the, um, the Jews of Judea rebelled against their Roman masters. In response to this, Emperor Nero dispatched an army to restore order. By the year 68, resistance in the northern part of the province had been eradicated and the Romans turned their full attention to the subjugation of Jerusalem. That same year, Emperor Nero died by his own hand, creating a power vacuum in Rome. <clears throat> in the resultant chaos, Vespasian, Vespasian? was declared emperor and returned to the imperial city. It soon fell to his son, Titus, to lead the remaining army in the assault of Jerusalem. All right, so what do we know happened in 70 AD? Does anybody know what happened in 70 AD? Destruction of the temple. Destruction of the temple. And this is, this is how it came about, right? It started with this rebellion. There was a siege onto Jerusalem. Um, and it says that the Roman legions surrounded the city and began to slowly squeeze the life out of the Jewish stronghold. By the year 70, the attackers had breached Jerusalem's outer walls and began a systemic ransacking of the city. The assault culminated in the burning and destruction of the temple that served as the center of Judaism. In victory, the Romans slaughtered thousands of those spared from death. Thousands more were enslaved and sent to toil in the mines of Egypt. Others were dispersed to arenas throughout the empire to be butchered for the amusement of the public. The temple's sacred relics were taken to Rome where they were displayed in celebration of the victory. So in AD 70, the temple was destroyed, gone, kaput. If we look at our next slide, this is the Arch of Titus celebrating his victory over um, the destruction of Jerusalem. It was constructed in 81 AD in honor of Titus after his death. Um, and it's got like, it's got panels on it that 
depict the triumphant procession. You know, they destroyed the city, they did all those terrible things, and they come back in victory. Just, a, just another interesting fun fact, this was constructed in 81 A.D. Pompeii was destroyed in 79 A.D. This is in, I think it's in, um, it's in Rome. Rome. It's in Rome. It's part of the, the Roman Forum where they have a lot of yeah. examples. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so now we're going to fast forward. We're going to just put our little fast forward on. We're going to go to 324 A.D. And we're going to talk about Constantine and his empire. Constantine was born in 280 AD and he, he was brought up in the Eastern Empire. In AD 312, after a series of battles, he became the Western Empire. So he was raised in the East. He was raised in the East, but after battles in the West. He became the Empire of the West. In 324 AD, he defeated the Eastern Emperor and then became the sole Emperor of both East and West. He was the first Roman Emperor to convert to Christianity. In 330, he founded Constantinople, which is today modern-day Istanbul. So now think about this. So now we have two capitals. We have Rome and we have Constantinople. Two capitals, two cities. And he reigned over a major transition of the Roman Empire. His acceptance of Christianity and his establishment of an eastern capital city, which would later bear his name, mark his rule as a significant pivot point between ancient history and the Middle Ages. Um, by the time Constantine established his new capital in 330, the city that would be called Constantinople had changed hands multiple times among regional superpowers. Um, Darius the, the I of Persia, the Delian League, the Spartans, Alexander the Great, all had ruled the, the strategic port known as Byzantinum on on the strait between the Black Sea and the Sea of Marmara. Um, it was destroyed in AD 196 and rebuilt as a grander version which Constantine expanded upon for his new Rome. He wanted it to be a new Rome. And this new town, Constantinople, um, in grandeur, it, it soon eclipsed Rome. And the historical, you know, con the historical record tells us that eventually the Western Empire crumbled until Rome fell in 476 A.D. But Constantinople, it, sa it said, and the Christian foundation he laid there for the empire continued to thrive for nearly a thousand years. Nearly a thousand years. So if we go to the next slide. This is a bust of Constantine. Isn't that interesting? We can see what he looked like. It's kind of cool. 
Um, and I found his conversion story. And that's kind of interesting. Here we go. This was in an article from Christianity Today. It said, in the spring of 311, with 40,000 soldiers behind him, Constantine rode toward Rome to confront an enemy whose numbers were four times his own. Maxitius, vying for supremacy in the West, waited in Rome with his Italian troops and the elite uh, Praetorian Guard, confident no one could successfully invade the city. But Constantine's army was already overwhelming his foes in Italy as he marched toward the capital. Maxentitus turned to pagan oracles, finding a prophecy that the enemy of the Romans would perish. But Constantine was still miles away. So bolstered by the prophecy, Maxentius left the city to meet his foe. Meanwhile, Constantine saw a vision in the afternoon sky, a bright cross with the words, By this sign, conquer. As the story goes, Christ himself told Constantine in the dream to take the cross into battle as his standard. Though accounts vary, Constantine apparently believed the omen to be a word from God. When he awoke early the next morning, the young commander obeyed the message and ordered his soldiers to mark their shields with the now famous Chi Rho. Some, some said called it Chi Rho. I, don't, I always thought it was Chi. But if we go to the next slide, that's the emblem that was that he put on his uniforms and things. Um, it is an abbreviation for the name of Jesus. Um, and then if we go to the next one, this is the Arch of Constantine in Rome. And it was commissioned by the Roman Senate to commemorate Constantine's victories over Maxentitus in 312 AD. I mean, just incredible. Like, look at these things. Incredible. So old. It's, I mean, it's documenting history right there for us to look at. And so this ends my historical lesson today. Um, but I am reminded that God is indeed concerned with the affairs of men. I mean, just look at the word history, history. If you break it apart, you could see his story. I don't know if that's really where it came from, but when you look at it, you can see that. His story. And all of these things have happened as part of his story. Isaiah 14:24 says, "The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so it shall be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand." So remember, in Daniel 4:25, King Nebuchadnezzar is told that he will live in the wilderness like a wild animal till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And ladies, if this lesson teaches you anything, I hope it gives you the assurance that just as God was orchestrating the events of history throughout all of these empires, he is still orchestrating the events of today. Therefore,
we do not have to be afraid. He will accomplish his glorious purposes. So we can fear not.